Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on interacting with different types of investors as a CMO from the 2023 Chief Medical Officer Summit 360. For more information on the CMO Summit editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit cmo360.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Before we jump into the uh, pithy heart of the matter, could you each just spend a minute or two introducing yourself, the, co- the setting in which you work, and what your interaction interactions with investors are? Hi, I'm Tim Peter Strickland from PPD, Global Medical Officer, and I work with all kinds of biotechs, including venture capital um, groups to help fund them and support them along their journey. Uh, thanks so much. My name is Jaden Shaw, Chief Medical Officer at Sumitomo. Previous to this, I was at Carrier Farm, and so for really started a small biotech with about 100 people. And over five years, we raised about 500 million and went through the process of becoming commercial. Um, and so, uh, a nice evolution working with investors throughout that time period. Hi, everyone. I'm Stefan Vitorovich. Uh, my interaction with investors is every morning when I look in the mirror <laughs> um, at Vita Ventures, a uh, venture capital firm that does company formation and uh, investing across all stages of therapeutic development. Um, and our team focuses a lot on uh, large unmet needs in cancer, rare genetic diseases, and CNS medicines. Hey, Randall Stanke. I'm the chief financial officer at Click Therapeutics. Uh, and background, 20 years on Wall Street, both in the buy and sell side. So I've come from a, an operating perspective, buy side perspective, and sell side uh, analyst perspective. Looking forward to the discussion. All right, great. So we have a, a, a diverse array of um, interactors, I would say. And I think for all of us as CMOs, much of our experience is in the uh, patient care and clinical development realm. So for many of us, these interactions can be very new. Um, so to begin with, before a CMO meets with investors, what sort of background research should they do to be sure to be prepared for the meeting? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, the, the whole point of this is that it's all about, when you're, as you're communicating as a CMO, to know your audience. And that's, you know, at, at any, 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 any time you're speaking, right, but especially with investors. And so for me, there's two types of, and you guys can comment, two types of kind of investor engagements. And one is if you're going on a road show and you're going to have like every 15-minute calls or if you're going to be at J.P. Morgan or something like that, right? That's a very different investor interaction. Um, and the second kind of group that I usually do is kind of the maintenance calls, right? The Q3 earnings calls are the ones that you're doing quarterly with investors. And so those are people that you have a long-term relationship with. You already know them. They know you. So that's a very different engagement. Um, and so being prepared for one, both of those is important. And I think when you're starting from, you know, the first bucket, which is that uh, roadshow type where you're trying to raise funds or having short calls and meeting with new investors, and those are short 15, 20-minute interactions, you know, those are helpful because that's when I sit down with the CFO saying, you know, what kind of communications have we had before with them? What questions have they had before? What are their challenges that they've had before with us? Um, and the same thing for those kind of long-term investors. You want to understand, okay, is this somebody who's been buying more recently, selling more recently? What kind of tough questions have they had? Have we been able to answer those questions for them before? What residual questions do they keep answering time and time again? So I think those types of things are important to prepare coming into it terms of what kind of engagement it is, what previous interactions we have, and what's the goal. And oftentimes you go into this, we'll start a whole day of like meetings all day, 
but if you don't prepare for each one individually, I think it's helpful to do that. I think that's phenomenal advice. I mean, knowing your audience and knowing sort of the history interactions is uh, gives you a leg up. Um, on those sort of introductory conversations, it's helpful to understand sort of investment philosophy behind the firm and any precedent, um, precedent in, uh, investments that might be analogous to the ones they're making, whether it's stage development, modality, or particular therapeutic area. Um, also understanding you know, decision-making within the organization and sort of what interactions you're having with whom and what their processes are like for making that first investment. On the longer-term care and nurture, I think it's really great when um, CMOs develop direct relationships with investors, especially more technical investors, because we like to hear it directly. We don't need it filtered necessarily or you know, scheduled through IR or, or finance. Um, so getting to know your investors and also not, not being shy about getting to know them personally as well over time, especially once they're building a position. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And you know, no two meetings are the same. And having spent 20 years doing my best to, to beat up management teams and CFOs, and as a sell-side analyst, I now as a CFO understand where some of that's coming from. But I, I think one of the biggest things I would say is just being prepared, right? If you go into a meeting and you know an investor is focused on specific, you know, a specific issue, focus for that issue and come prepared or bring the people you need to to talk about that issue. Uh, the worst meetings are the meetings where people don't understand what the investor is looking for and if they, you don't understand, you're not going to be able to help and appease. Um, but again, every meeting is, is different. Um, but I agree with everybody on the stage. Randall, while you're on that topic, since you've been on both sides of the table, if you will, can you think of themes where certain issues come up routinely and you just think, oh, geez, whether from the analyst slash investor side or now from the CFO side? Yeah, it's, inter it's, it's an inter interesting question, and I'll give you an answer that you might not be expecting. I, I kind of grew up thinking there, every company has three things that matter in the bigger picture, right? So you go and if you're meeting with a series of investors, you know these three things are gonna come up. There's a, you know, a views out there, you know what everyone's view is, and you have, you know, you address that. Um, the, the, the questions that you roll your eyes at are the ones when you just absolutely doesn't matter, and you realize that the investor hasn't done the work, and you realize it's just not going to be an important or um, eventful meeting. And so I, I personally love getting really challenging questions. I love when an investor comes and has done a ton of work, asks really detailed, deep questions, because you know they care, and they really want to get to know the company. Super interesting. Any other comments on that situation where either from the investor side or from the company side, specific things that are sort of pet peeves that we as CMOs should look out for? I think one is um, you have to have the right balance of sort of boldness and humility. I think, of course, when you know, people are asking for capital, you know, there has to be a component of humility, but not to the point of sort of serving the investor. Rather, investors sometimes will play the role of you know, playing devil's advocate or asking difficult questions to see how management reacts to that, to see how firm they are, to see how united they are in that view. Um, and I think the other point I would make is the CMO is part of a you know, leadership team of the organization, especially as things become clinical stage and moving towards registration, their voice is very important. And so even if they're the ones designing the trials, leading the team, it's important to provide confidence to investors um, that that's somebody who's sort of on top of it. And one thing that's one of my pet peeves is when there are those types of questions and a CEO sort of steps in as answering those. Uh, even if it's a CEO who kind of came up through the ranks, the CMO, that's even more worrisome to me that they're sort of, um, you know, backfilling for that role. Um, so I, I think that's another point is sort of understanding the mosaic of a team and the role of a CMO and sort of those in those direct 
uh, interactions. Now, just kind of the one other additional comment that I've faced as a pet peeve is when I'm asked questions and I'm not consistent in my answers. So if I answer it one way, and then three months later we meet again, because they take notes, copious notes, right? And so if I, you know, change my answer or if I don't deliver, right? And that's a pet peeve that I've faced. Like, hey, you said you're going to do this and you haven't, or you said you're going to deliver this at Ash and now it's only this. So I think those types of things, being aware of the commitments you've made and delivering on them and being consistent in your messaging is absolutely key. And that inspires confidence. Stefan, I want to um, push on a theme that you raised about team dynamics. Of course, we all have to do the best science we can and operationalize what we do, but that also involves humans working together, which is never straightforward. How, can you tell me, as an investor, or you all as in, interacting with investors, how do you think about team dynamics? What do you want to see? And perhaps more importantly, what are red flags or issues that we as CMOs should be sure that we address before coming into such a meeting? Yeah, I mean, I think teams are everything. I think we all recognize that. That's why we're here interacting with, with peers in our industry. Um, you know, team dynamics are very hard to assess, especially as you're making later stage investments and thinking about public companies where you don't have as much opportunity to spend time with teams. About a quarter of what we do is building uh, companies, and with that, building teams the most important element. So there, you get a much better flavor for how that comes together. And Zoom has made it all the more difficult, uh, sort of the reliance on Zoom for early interactions and using it as a sort of major tool for communicating um, with external folks. Um, for us, we get comfort on having had history with working with people, um, both us and people within our network, and sort of vetting interactions through that. Um, now, it can be great people, but sort of a collectively a difficult sort of context that's also very challenging to, to sort of suss out. There's no substitute for spending time uh, with people in person in the group setting. Um, and uh, I think you have to sort of read between the lines. It's a bit of an art to understand how much people really, it's also what they're not saying as much as what they're saying. So I'm interviewing quite a lot for how people uh, get along well together because I think in biotech it's more the norm than the exception where you're gonna hit some roadblocks or, or some sort of hurdle and sort of how you uh, kind of come together around that and how you navigate that is, is sort of the difference between great and good. And so um, those are some of the things we take into account. Yeah, <clears throat> I wanted to say as a psychiatrist, it's all about the relationship. And it's all about that authenticity and the team building piece, right? I mean, when the CMO comes in, he, has, he or she has to fit with the rest of the group in, in a seamless way that is going to you know, propel them forward together, right? Um, and bring in people who are going to do that uh, and build that team, you know, as a person at a time. And so I think that's critical. Um, you also need somebody who is able to lead and has a steady um, hand on the, you know, on the steering wheel, um, but you also need to be um, creative to know when you're able to deviate from kind of what is kind of our usual path, right? And know that you're in taking a calculated risk. Yeah, I was gonna just answer very shortly. I mean, what I wanna see, or what I want, wanted to see when I was on the sell side is, is, is people in, in person. And um, the last couple of years we've gotten so used to just, and, and almost lazy in a way, of doing meetings over Zoom because they don't have to travel. When I was at Goldman Sachs as a sell side analyst, we had a rule. We couldn't initiate on a company without actually going to their headquarters, no matter where they were. 
So if we didn't visit the management team at their headquarters, we couldn't launch on the company. That's not just meeting the management team, that's actually going to where they work, making sure there's four walls, a roof, and all the other things that come with that. Um, but it also gives you a sense of you know, company culture walking around the halls. I think that's so important, and it's one of the things that over the last couple of years we've seemed to have forgotten a little bit, and I, my hope comes back. Thanks for that. Digging a little deeper into an issue that I think has come to the fore in recent years, which is diversity within the workplace. How do you, and I know it's something that all of us are really trying to work on it at every level, how do you feel yourselves as investors or those who interact with investors are approaching thinking about diversity when you're thinking about the um, teams that you're interacting with? I guess it's, it's two counterbalancing points. Um, one is we want the best person for the job, no doubt, bar none. Um, that said, some of the best studies on high-performing teams have shown that more diverse teams perform better uh, across various cuts of diversity, both sort of visible diversity that we often talk about, but also invisible diversity in terms of people's uh, inclinations, personality types, sort of um, ways of being brought up. Um, I think those are also important sort of metrics of diversity that are hard to capture. Um, there's no doubt when you have more sort of ubiquitous perspectives or uniform perspectives, some of those easy questions or more obvious questions don't get asked as much and there's more taken for granted, which is where you get tripped up, I think, in our industry. You sort of have to be paranoid by definition, I think, given the number of ways you can fail. So I think it is really important. It's very hard sort of if you're looking at individual job posting, you know, job description, you're interviewing candidates to understand is this somebody who's gonna fit the role and do the job well, and then how in the matrix of the rest of the organization will they fit, where will they stand out, where will they um, potentially need some help, and it, it's not always straightforward, but all else equal, my, my inclinations are for trying to seek a bit more diversity, even if it takes a little bit more time to sort of you know, bring everyone together, I think ultimately you'll have a better product. Well, and it's about the team, right? It's not about the individuals, and somebody can be a very, um, you know, high achiever in, uh, you know, a, a single contributor, right? But not work with the team, not be part of the team, and actually holds the team back. So I think that's another thing that you have to look at. I would, I would just add, it need, you know, diversity needs to be something that's actionable, not just stated, and needs to come from the top down, and, and really, you know, needs to be part of the company culture. And that's something, I mean, we talk about internally quite a bit um, amongst our management team. Um, it's easy just to, to say that we want to be diverse, but actually to take action internally and externally is a different, different dynamic. No, I was just going to say we need to walk the walk rather than talk the talk, right? I, I met a, um, a CEO um, who was a CMO, and one of his mantras is leave your ego at the door. Right, and that's the whole com company ethos. And so it really is effective to create that environment that people come together. Great, thanks. And Stefan, I appreciate your point, especially that diversity comes in all ways, both uh, obvious and non-obvious, and, and all of those are important. To shift gears a little bit, I think it's no secret that we're in a little bit of a um, shaky place, shall we say, right now in the in the biotech industry, hopefully soon to stabilize, but nonetheless. Um, in that context especially, what do you want to hear from your CMO in terms of what sort of data, how they discuss risk, and how they approach risk 
in the current setting? I mean, my CMO is here, so I would say I want to I want to hear him say the data is great, um, first and foremost. No, I'm joking aside. Um, I know, and Shaheen and any CMO, you know, it, it's as a CFO, it's really helpful for everybody to understand the environment, the you know, raising capital, what our investors are going through, and be a part of that conversation at the executive level. Uh, and as we think about you know, capital allocation decisions internally, you know, the CMO needs to be a huge part of that because we need to allocate capital and capital is more limited today than it was two, three, four years ago. And so just being part of that discussion and, and understanding the environment is, I think, a big part of uh, what needs to be uh, happening today. Um, I think you used the word risk three times in the questions, so I think that is uh, topical. Um, biotech, obviously, pretty far in the spectrum of risk capital um, when people are debating whether interest rates will be 2 or 5% in a couple of years. Uh, you know, biotech has sort of fallen to the wayside, particularly for the generalist investors that, you know, we are sort of minnows in the sea and are affected by those, those currents. Um, I think one of the things that's really important is to just recognize the cost of capital as a result of that risk, the flip side of that coin, meaning the capital you have right now is very precious and the ability to get more capital is no longer a given unless you've shown very, very meaningful de-risking. And so I think being very transparent about what said experiments can uh, show and what they won't likely to show, be likely to show, and what questions are answered and which ones will be left unanswered. Of course, every data card poses new questions, but at least I think at the highest of levels is very important. I think what investors want to see is a path towards something that's less risky and something that becomes um, you know, potentially commercially viable one of the things that we've seen is a have and have nots dichotomy for early stage platform companies that have yet to show that the risking, they've gotten punished for no uh, fault of their own, it's just sort of the consequences of the environment. On the other side of the equation, companies that have shown really promising clinical data, uh, placebo controlled data, gotten registration, have gotten the appetite of both you know, pharma companies as well as investors alike as there's been a flight to safety as they call it. I think just to kind of close on that piece, one of the key pieces is, you know, CMOs, we focus entirely predominantly like on data, right, and science, and that's where our mind is at. And so it really takes, and, and executing, right, we're coming up with a plan and we're executing, um, but then it really takes a different mindset. You know, this is not an afterthought to come into a meeting with you, into all of our investor meetings. Crap, I got that all day tomorrow, I got to... This actually takes time and effort to understand and prepare for that. And I think you use a couple of terms there in terms of risking and de-risking, right? So I can go into a meeting and just present the scientific data, but if I paint it in the concept and saying this is how I'm going to de-risk it, or these are the risks and how we're managing, now you're talking their language, right? As opposed to just reviewing the data and being confident that this is great data, you want to kind of flip it around saying these are potential areas, these are risks, this is how we're de-risking it. Um, I think if you do that, then I think it goes a long ways to say, hey, I get the boat that you're in, and this is how we're going to be on the same page. Yeah, and I just wanted to say prioritization. I mean, that's what you have to do constantly and focus on what's going to move you forward and when those inflection points are and be able to plan for those. Um, you know, that roadmap and obviously the ability to pivot whenever you need to. I'll give a couple, maybe I'll give a couple tangible examples. So what I've used, for example, is that if you're, when I'm looking at our whole portfolio, I'm looking at saying this 
pathway is de-risked, right? So we'll go a whole different pathway. And so if I have a, target, a molecule that hasn't been any clinical data, either the pathway is validated, this target is validated, and I'll show them how it's validated with other clinical data from other companies, um, or this specific molecule is validated um, and go from there. So I think you have to break down how you validate it, specifically if it's a target, if it's the pathway, if it's the molecule itself. Um, and I think as you get into the clinical data, what's really helpful is oftentimes we get caught into like small number of patient samples to say, you know, here's our first five patients or 10 patients, here's the endpoints. But I think you really have to go with, in my mind, very hard endpoints. So like in oncology, for example, where I focus most of my time, if you look at a secondary endpoint like progression-free survival or overall survival, it holds very little weight early on to say you're going to have a great degree of confidence moving forward. But if I can show a true objective response rate, that gives you a lot of de-risking power, right? Because PFS in a, uh, or any survival endpoint in a single arm study is almost impossible to really hang your hat on. And so that's what you really need to go after saying this is why. And I think if you do those types of really concrete steps, that's how you start talking with investors in this shaky environment saying this is what I'm doing. And the last point is you have to have very concrete things. I'm going to get to this point of a solid go, no-go decision as opposed to we're going to do this and then we'll see what the data looks like and then we'll make decisions because then you're just at the mercy of whatever the data is and you don't have a clear path forward. So I think as long as you can articulate that, then I think that's really helpful for investors to say, okay, he has a clear idea or he or she has a clear idea where they're going, when they're going, and why they're going. Yeah, just one other point that's related to sort of the environment we're in is sort of this yin and yang of, you know, constantly having to have a longer-term vision for not only the company, but particularly an asset, assets that have expansion opportunities, life cycle management opportunities, um, you know, geographic expansion opportunities, whatever it may be, but also being really, really myopic and short-sighted in terms of what you have to get done. And uh, oftentimes, especially in this environment, people care that there could be more, but they're really focused on the latter, which is what are you going to deliver with what you currently have on your balance sheet or what this current raise is. And so having done as much appropriate preparation work and sort of thinking through the longer-term vision, but also being maniacal about executing with precious capital, sort of that yin and yang, that's especially sort of acute right now. The only thing I would add, and, and it's specific to this environment, but it in general makes sense, is reevaluate constantly. You know, th we're changing so quickly, and if you think about just a year and a half, two years ago, money was abundant. You know, we just hit, uh, in our sector, digital health, the lowest, you know, Q1, we're on a run rate to hit, you know, be back 2019 or below. Um, you know, so just being very, very agile, and if it means going into a hiring freeze or riffing or what have you, or going and reviewing the pipeline and pulling back on certain things, doing that early is really important because a lot of companies fail to do that or they, they, they think they have more time than they do, and then it's too late once they realize they have to make changes. Well, and I just wanted to add, I mean, I think it comes down to would you spend your own money on it, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I think has helped me over my career is, you know, when you're making these decisions. And, you know, the other thing is we have to, you know, do we want to design, you know, the best study ever, you know, that's a Ferrari, or do can we develop a, a Ford study to get us there, right? And it, that's fit for purpose, right? That we don't need all the bells and whistles. And again, that depends on the inflection point, the, cat, the next catalyst, and so forth. No, I just thought um, Randall's point was really on, on point right now because um, so many companies have phenomenal plans, 
um, and nothing's changed other than the external environment. And if a CMO might say, fundamentally, this is still the perfect trial to run, uh, and we might say, well, maybe right now is not the time for perfect. We can do something that's good and also save enough money so we have enough money to raise at the other end of that, not making the assumption it'll be as quick and easy as before, just as one example. But everything's on the table, I think, in this environment. So I'm going to be intentionally provocative here based on what you all are saying, which is that we're in sort of a risk-averse period right now. As CMOs, when we're having to prioritize, should we go for the lowest risk thing, or is there any room right now for going for higher risk, higher reward uh, targets or pathways? Trust your gut. You know, and I, I, so it depends, right? I mean, for me, you know, sometimes it may be the path of least resistance, right? The low hanging fruit, but you know, you may have information that leads you to make another decision. And I think, you know, you gotta make, you know, your, put your best foot forward at the time. And so I can see sometimes it may be either one, right? Or another option in the middle, right? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I think part of it's low risk, high risk. Part of it's when that readout happens, right? Because you have a short time frame that you need to operate in. Um, so you have to be able to deliver something in a short time period to have that inflection point. So I think uh, part of it's that, and then part of it's also balancing your portfolio, saying, hey, if I do something that's low risk, I'm doing something that's high risk, where am I spending my resources um, in the most efficient way? And so I think if you can kind of not do everything in the next six months, but if it takes 12 months for something else, six months, something, but I think the big thing is really trying to deliver value in a short time frame, just in the time period that we're in. But uh, I think you guys are probably the drivers of this. Um, so. <laughs> I don't know if we're the drivers and backseat passengers, but um, I do think sequencing, the point you were making, is really important. And maybe just coming off some fresh setbacks in the clinical setting. Um, sometimes I do wish that we put some wins on the board uh, earlier on with lower hanging fruit opportunities that might have been smaller markets, but a higher POS, r relatively rapid readouts versus going for, you know, sort of triples and home runs. I would I'd definitely uh, agree with that. I, I think the ability to hit singles and doubles, but with the high high visibility, so that you know you can keep the lights on on the other side is is critical. And then you know my other answer from a finance person's perspective is is it's all math, right? It's risk adjust everything, understand everything, but with guardrails, with hedges, understand what'll keep the company running. If it's a high risk opportunity and but the the reward is there and you think that you can manage through it, well that's a decision that you need to have with the board and the the exec team, but. To be able to have that analysis done and have those discussions is probably the, the critical part of that. So thank you for that. So let's dig now into, I think some of you said, Jay, inflection points, you've, you've used the term catalyst to fund. Um, many of us are very small companies or companies that are very early on. Obviously, we all want the inflection point of a fabulous phase one with safety and virtually magical efficacy. but. Such is not reality most of the time, and the journey from concept to that to approval is long. So can you talk a little bit about what are those near-term catalysts that make you say, aha, these guys are on the right track, these people, excuse me, are on the right track? So I'll get started. Um, 
So, uh, sure. <laughs> that wasn't intended to be a difficult question. Tough question. So again, I think part of it is um, delivering, right? So I think if you're going to deliver something in a, some time period, even if it's you know um, uh, whatever the inflection data may be, but if you can deliver when you're supposed to deliver, I think that's important. Um, and so that alone, I think, speaks volumes. But I think it's really tough, you know, to, to say um, what that inflection point looks like for each product, right, in terms of, because uh, you have to look at the entire external landscape. And so at Sumitomo, for example, we're focused on MEN inhibitors as one of our pathways. Last year, we had zero clinical data, um, but we knew that that pathway was validated based on Syndax and Cura and a few other MEN inhibitors that are a year ahead. So I said, okay, well, this is a low risk because we're looking at our eight programs that this is a validated pathway among all of these eight targets. And so that became, okay, this is going to be a value driver where I can assign some value to it. And then as you move forward to that process, you know, as we clear, say, hey, we're not seeing the clinical, uh, sorry, the cytokine release syndrome, which is a major kind of problem with the other MEN inhibitors. So we're not seeing that. So that's an important point as we go through the dose escalation. So it doesn't have to be the full phase one safety, right? So you're seeing, okay, we're adding value as you go along. And now we see a couple of responses. So that another is an important point as well. So I think you just kind of have to break it down specifically for each target or each molecule that you're working on saying, what is there that you're gonna get that confidence uh, if it's preclinical data or cl early clinical data? Um, and then also looking at kind of the external landscape, right? So as the external landscape evolves saying, hey, these, three other assets now have all failed, saying, okay, maybe there's a little bit more de-risk and there's an opportunity for this to move forward uh, with this other pathway. So I think there's a number of factors that come into play, um, but also timeliness of delivering that, I think, is important. But I'll give you the big picture finance guy's perspective, finance person's perspective. Protect the baby, so protect the lead asset. That's the focus. You've know, you got to focus on the lead asset, science projects, projects aside, um, and focus on the, the catalysts and the... Uh, the uh, milestones for that, that lead product, that's important. And then protect the money, you know, and, and from our perspective, it's, and, and by the way, protecting the money should be something you do all the time. Um, you put out a budget and you do your best to beat on top line and control on cost. And investors, especially in this environment, when you're trying to raise capital, are gonna want to see that track record as they evaluate management. And those management teams that have been able to show that they can weather the storm, because that's what we're all trying to do right now, and still, perform and execute in tough environments and progress you know, an asset that has value with catalysts that you can raise money off of, I think that's a better plan or recipe for, um, for success. Well, and I just wanted to say it's all about the data at the end of the day. Um, with some of my teams in the past, you know, I've come up with like a, a catchy thing around you know, in real estate, what's the most important thing? Location, location, location. Well, in clinical development, clinical trials, what's the most important thing? Data, 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 right? So if you have that, that's currency, and that's value, and that's gonna get you to the next step. Yeah, I agree, and I think our industry is inherently binary, um, no doubt. While it's maybe an oversimplification, there's certainly an outcome in it. It's positive or negative. Um, along the way, what gets us comfort is a lot of, you know, details on execution. Um, you know, how are, how's site activation going? How's enrollment going? Um, how are we doing on recruiting and sort of filling the key roles? How are we doing against budget and sort of thinking about contingency planning? Um, 
so those are some of the metrics, but I think some of the soft stuff's really important, especially this environment is everyone's asked to do more with less. I think it's, um, we, you know, and we're doing some things virtually, people were hired a lot during sort of uh, pandemic periods, is, you know, how's the team doing together? How are they spending time together? How, how much is dedicated towards, like after the meeting, are they hanging out a little bit longer? Are they enjoying, are we doing dinners before big strategy sessions? Are we even doing strategy sessions anymore? What's the forum for how they're interacting? Like those things along the way give me sort of indicators, KPIs as well on sort of the health of the organization beyond you know the data, which are ultimately binary and some of the metrics that are measurable. I just have one more thing. And just this maybe this is a little bit more unique to us, but you know, also make sure you're focused on your stakeholders. And for us, it's our partners, and you know, make sure we're delivering on our partners, the work we're doing for them, um, and also our, our board and our investors. Um, at the end of the day, those are the people that you know we report to and that we're performing to. So. Um, you know, over communicating and, um, and and being in front of the, the state, you know, the key stakeholders or something that we're really focused on. And I would like to add, I think picking the right partners is critical because we all have options of who we work with. And I think you've got to go into it and ask the right questions up front and do your best to do due diligence around, you know, who you want to work with because you're going to be married to them for a number of years, right? Um, and so you've got to come to the table together and figure it out. Thank you guys for that. It's so interesting to hear you speak because I feel like there are certain themes that are emerging, which all happen to start with the word D, which is coincidental. Define what you're going to do and what your investors should expect. Do risk and then deliver. I think those things keep pulling out. We did hear our um, close to done Bing. So um, if you could each close with what would be your high level advice to a first time CMO? Focus on the team. Um, I learned this from my six year old daughter. This was a number of years ago where she asked me one day, she goes, Poppy, what does team mean? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she goes, T-E-A-M, what does it mean? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, sweetie, you know? And she goes, together, everyone achieves more. And I think that if, as a CMO, if you put, if you have the right team, you can do anything. Yeah, I think specific to this forum, the natural fallback for all CEOs, CMOs, is to go through the data. And there's a ton of data, no matter what space you're in. So you're going to naturally fall back on just going through slides of massive amounts of information. That's not what investors want. What investors want is something that's clear and concise that you can explain within three or four minutes, because these guys are going for every 15 minutes from meeting to meeting, right? So your job is not an information dump. Your job is to be clear and consist, con concise and consistent. One last point. I gave a talk. I said, I'm excited about this data. I saw the same investor over a reception. I see him two or three times. I said, I was very excited about the data. He came back to me and goes, are you excited or are you very excited? And I had no idea that they're paying that particular attention. So literally, that's what they do. So your best advice is be clear, be consistent, and be concise, not a data dump. That's what you need to get across. So are you excited or very? <laughs> or, or somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Um, I, I would say, yeah, I think biotech is, is the opposite of sort of hero ball. It's really sort of a village working together to try to raise a medicine or set of medicines and sort of the concept of team, not feel, feeling the pressure, but appropriately so, but recognizing you're part of a, 
a unit both within the organization but also the clinical advisory board, the various uh, sponsors of, of, the, of the trial that are you know, collaborating with you, the KOLs, um, the patients themselves and the advocacy groups sort of working the entirety of the various nodes and experts around you to sort of get to the best possible plan uh, and plan B um, and, and then execution as well. So I, I think just feeling that pressure but also not feeling that you need to sort of deliver solely and using that network. Yeah, the person on the end always has to come up with four answers, just in case. Um, no, I, I would say, you know, maybe this is a bit of a summary, but I'd say speak multiple languages, right? Be able to speak to investors, inter your internal uh, team, med team, um, you know, CFO, CEO. I think being able to deliver messages around complex data to different audiences is a, is a very you know, important uh, talent or trait of a, a good CMO. I'd also say, and this maybe goes back to my time on the investor or sell side, I'd say be credible. Don't overhype data. Investors are very smart. Um, people can read data. Uh, and you're gonna lose credibility really quickly if you do that. So people just wanna see an honest assessment um, and, uh, and don't set up expectations that you can't, you can't deliver to. Great, thank you. Really appreciate all of your insights. Ed, do we have a few more minutes for questions from the audience or are we out of time? All right, well, it looks like you've been so no, thorough. I'll, I'll take one. Okay, take one. great. All right, go for it. Yeah, I, the last comment, setting expectations, is a really good one. I think the whole executive team has to be mindful of how you march out your data and expectations, even like six months, even a year ahead of time. Because to me, it's all about, it's like everything in life, right? <laughs> expectations, you know, you overset expectations. So I think that's a really good comment. And would like to hear some more thoughts on how some strategies you've done that. I mean, do you meet at the beginning of the year or whatever and say, okay, we've got all this data coming out through the year. How do we, how do we march out? How we, you know, foreshadow it, et cetera. So like to hear, because that's how I would, that's how I would think of it, but if you have some specific strategies around that or thoughts around that. I would just very quickly say from, you know, from sitting on boards to being an investor to being a CFO as part of a, a team that's scaling, timelines are always wrong. And once you put detailed timelines out, you're living up to expectations that are probably not going to be met. So you need to be very, very careful because once they're out, they're out. And so setting you know, clinical milestone timing, uh, be very, very thoughtful about that. That's something that you know, again, more from the investor CFO side, I get very, very nervous about uh, when we have to continually, you know, answer questions, you know, are you gonna hit FPI or this or that? And then the body language and the very, all these things come in and it's a game that nobody needs or wants to play. Um, and so that's something to be very wary of. I think also to the point of sort of evaluate and reevaluate, um, just one recent example, we're, we're running a clinical trial in an orphan CNS disease and there's a six month interim readout. It's a novel mechanism. The drug hasn't been approved ever in the history of the indication. And our first public company true efficacy readout is a six-month interim read on six to eight patients. So likely to be very noisy. The natural history study just started reporting some interesting information and gave us insight into what level of variability there is in various biomarkers that we can read out on. And so we had one plan that we started communicating to the street after having more information, even though it was good information in the long run. In the short run, it meant that we might not be able to show separation uh, from natural history and sort of getting ahead of that as soon as we had that information being aligned. And even though we're sort of ripping the Band-Aid on what will be the six-month read, 
having also confidence in the data set that will ultimately give us an approvable endpoint. So investors might have to take a near-term hit to get something more likely to get approved. So transparency and, and I think being open to, to new data. I'll just add one additional comment. There's a lot of pressure for CMOs to deliver, right? The CEO and the board are saying, hey, got to get this out. So there's always going to be a pressure to over-deliver, do things faster. And I think that's where you need to be a bit realistic, right? Because there's always going to be that external pressure. And then as a new time or early CMO, you're going to want to do that. And, you know, as most physicians, we never say no to anything. Like we always say yes, right? That's our natural tendency. So be very, very careful about over-committing or over-promising despite the tremendous pressure that may come, right? So. All right, well, thank you guys so much. This was very, very interesting and helpful. Appreciate all of your attention. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the CMO Summit 360, editorials, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit cmo360.org. Thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.